Hi everyone and welcome to the Genomics Lab podcast, the podcast about current research in the field of genomics. We are your hosts, Eleanor Watson and Olivia Grant, two PhD students in the genomics group at the University of Essex. Join us as we speak to researchers in the field about their current research and their journey into genomics. Hi everyone, hope you're all doing okay. Guys, today is quite possibly one of my favourite episodes ever. I speak to Sudarshan from NYU Medical Centre. He is a fellow PhD student and it's been ages since I actually sat down and recorded with another student. So I was really excited. Um, And we spoke about his work, which is part of the Dark Matter Project. And it is just so, so cool. I really think he is a great example of why PhD students should be considered for more things like invited talks and like um, uh, what wider seminars and things like that because he really done such an amazing job at communicating his research. Um, so, you know, actually, let's just go straight to today's episode. I hope you enjoy it. If you listen, please consider again giving the show a rating or a review, especially if you listen on Apple Podcasts or even just heading to our Instagram or Twitter, which is at the Genomics Lab and retweeting one of our latest tweets, or even better, give me a little bit of feedback. Let me know what episode you're listening to. Actually, hold on, scrap that. If you heard that, then I know what episode you're listening to. So either tell me your favorite episode, or just let me know that you listen. Because the thing is, I know that there's like a good 800 of you who listen to each episode, but you're also quiet. I don't know who you are. So I feel like sometimes my stats are lying to me because you're all very quiet, but each episode does get a nice amount of plays. So please let me know where you're listening from. Even if you just want to DM me privately, just be nice to hear from some of you. Anyways, I would really appreciate that. Let's get on with today's episode. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Genomics Lab. So I am really excited today to be joined by another student. It's been so long since I have like filmed with someone who wasn't a PI or a professor or something. So I'm really excited for today's episode. So I'm joined by um, Sudarshan. So thank you so much for joining me and welcome to the show. Thanks, Olivia. It's uh, fantastic to be here. I've really enjoyed uh, the few episodes that I've listened to. Uh, so I'm excited to be part of this uh, series. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I'm so excited. Um, today's topic, I've literally been excited for since we first spoke. Because, um, yeah, it's just what you do is so, so cool. Like I said, I was reading more about it today. Um, so, yeah, I'm really excited. So start off how we always do. Would you mind mm-hmm. just introducing yourself? Tell us where you are, what you do, sort of like how you got onto your PhD and everything like that as well. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I am a uh, PhD student uh, just finishing up uh, in the labs of Jeff Buka and Liam Holt at NYU Medical Center in, in New York. Um, so the basic sort of premise of our work is that we need to understand not just what genes are in complex genomes, but how they're turned on and off, because that really determines the diversity of all cell types and behaviors that we see. Uh, and uh, since the Human Genome Project and the sort of genomics revolution since, 
we've been able to catalog a whole bunch of elements that are called non-coding elements that seem to control when genes are turned on and off. But we don't really have sense for the rules of how they regulate gene expression, so to speak. Uh, and so historically work has been in this area has been somewhat top down, which is to say, here's a particular locus and we're interested in how it's regulated. So we're either gonna like change a few things or characterize uh, a few things sort of deeply. And especially with the advent of things like CRISPR, we can also make changes to things that exist. Uh, but what we think is that that's not really giving us a complete sense for uh, how these different elements come together to give us gene expression. And so the, the approach that we're taking is a building approach. So rather than a top-down editing or characterizing approach, what we're saying is let's try to build these regulatory systems from the ground up. And every time we fail to build a particular gene expression program, then we've actually learned something about how genes are regulated. And if we fail enough, we'll get to, be, we'll kind of understand how genes are turned on and off. Mm -hmm. I love that approach. Absolutely love it. What would you explain yourself as? So like I would, ex I would say like if someone asked me what field I'm in, I would say epigenetics or I'm an epigeneticist. What would you explain yourself as? That is a good question. Uh, I don't know if such a field exists, but maybe like a, a, a synthetic biologist who studies gene regulation. And, yeah, and maybe it's a good sign, yeah, that maybe it's a good sign that there isn't a term for, for what I do, because maybe it's a new yeah. and exciting area to go into, uh, but yeah, so maybe synthetic. I, I was thinking, yeah, yeah. I, I was yeah. thinking you were going to say something along those lines, or yeah. something like biotech, but I didn't really feel like it was biotech, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's always awkward, isn't it? Like, I had this conversation about a while back actually with someone and they said to me like what would you describe yourself as and I was like oh god I actually don't know because I feel like when you're a PhD student you kind of don't feel like I don't know how you feel but a lot of people I spoke to were like oh we've never really thought about that like what would you explain yourself as yeah yeah it's you know for something that I'd recently been talking to a few of my colleagues is it took me a really long time to even describe myself as a scientist yeah yes I, I felt like you know a scientist was you know, uh, you know, these people that I looked up to, right, like professors and like uh, maybe more senior postdocs and researchers and not something that uh, it could really apply to me. Uh, and I still struggle with it sometimes to call myself a scientist, but uh, yeah. but I think it's it's important to kind of own that because I think, you know, we all are. Yeah, we are. Uh, we technically are, of course. Yeah. And I think as well, like, because a lot, well, a lot of us, or I don't know if you are, but I think we kind of see ourselves as being in academia as well. So we don't really have those job titles, do we, of like scientists or epigeneticists or synthetic biologists. We're just, right. we would just be, you know, like professors or lecturers. Like if our mum asked us or someone we met on the street was like, what do you do? would be like lecturer, professor, not right. I'm an epigeneticist, you know? <laughs> yeah. so I feel like yeah. it's understandable. So mm -hmm. did you do like a master's beforehand? What was your undergraduate in as well? Yeah, so uh, I did undergrad degrees in uh, molecular cellular biology and philosophy, uh, and I didn't do a, a master's in, in the U.S. You can do a direct Ph.D. program, so I went straight from my undergrad to my Ph.D. program. But interestingly, the, the way that I got into this field was my current graduate mentor was uh, previously at Johns Hopkins, where I did my undergrad degree. Uh, and he used to run this class called uh, Build a Genome, which in, so in, in the, give you a little bit more background, 
in the lab, they'd started this project called the Synthetic Yeast Project, which was a project to build a completely synthetic version of the baker's yeast genome. Mm -hmm. uh, and it turned out when the project started in the late 2000s, you know, synthetic DNA, which is just literally printing DNA, was quite expensive, especially if you wanted to print DNA that was worth an entire yeast genome, which was 12 million base pairs. Yeah. So his idea was, you know what, there's a whole bunch of undergrads running around the campus and maybe we can use them as free labor uh, to basically help build this synthetic yeast genome. So he started a class called Build a Genome, which basically gave undergrads an opportunity to be involved in some really cutting edge synthetic genomics. Uh, and I remember the first day I sat in the class and a, a bulb just went off and I was like, this is exactly what I've dreamt wow. of doing. Uh, and so uh, sort of continue to do that work in my, my PhD as well. Oh, amazing. Did you like, did you approach him to, to work with him? Is, so is he your supervisor now or? He is, yeah, he is my yeah. supervisor. So I, when I applied to grad school, I applied to NYU with definitely the intention of continuing this work uh, and thankfully got in uh, and then joined the lab for my PhD. That's amazing. That's a nice story. It is mm -hmm. a nice story. Quite similar yeah. for me actually as well. Like, I didn't do a master's either. I went from my like yeah. undergrad to my PhD and I did my undergraduate dissertation with my now PhD supervisor. Yeah. yeah. In like bioinformatics. And I when I like started it, I was like, oh my God, I don't want to do this. Like I hate bioinformatics. Yeah. The worst thing ever. And then by the end of it, I was like, I love it. Like this is exactly what I want to do. So I can yeah, relate to that. Yeah, there's a funny like curve when it comes to like loving and hating your science, right? Um, yeah, I think but, we all go through stages of loving and hating it, just especially during a PhD, right? Like, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think everyone can probably relate to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, sure. Okay, so back to your project. Mm -hmm. Could you then explain for the listeners what exactly is, you mentioned non-coding DNA. Mm -hmm. What exactly is it? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm sure most of your listeners listeners will be well aware that, you know, only something like 2% of a human genome, for example, encodes for the actual proteins that, are, uh, that make up our body, for example. The rest of it, you could think of it, the rest 98%, you could think of as sort of the blueprint for programming when the 2% gets turned on and off. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, as I alluded to, since the, the Human Genome Project uh, and the subsequent sort of genomics revolution through all kinds of different projects, such as the ENCODE project and other ATLAS projects, we have a nice sort of rich catalog of what these various elements in the non-coding genome are. And one specific kind are these uh, elements called enhancers that mm -hmm. are somewhat uh, tricky to define. They're mostly defined functionally, but they seem to control when their target genes are turned on and off. Uh, and so the, the interesting thing though, is like for on average, each gene is targeted or is controlled by maybe 10 to 20 enhancers or so. And it's really unclear, why do you need 10 or 20 enhancers? Uh, for example, do you need them to be in a specific order? Do, they, do you need them to have a specific content? Is the spacing important? Uh, is the copy number important and so on and so forth. And so the sort of regulatory grammar of, of the genome has been somewhat opaque. Uh, and that's really the question that we're, we're trying to solve. Uh, and you know, there's, there's multiple layers of, of complexity that you can add on. So there are these uh, 
so in addition to enhancers, there's epigenetic modifications of chromatin. Uh, in, in the last 10 years or so, there's been a revolution in understanding how uh, DNA is packaged in three dimension in, in cells. And so, and that seems to have some role that's not fully clear in uh, programming gene expression as well. And so what we really wanna understand is how these different regulatory inputs are coming together to give us an ultimate gene expression pattern. And we think there hasn't been a good approach to study or a, a, a as good approach to study that previously. Yeah. yeah, so I feel like from what I've seen as well, there's a lot of approaches, but they're always incomplete in some way, shape or form, which is understandable, right? Like you said, it's, it's so complex, like so, so complex. There's, you know, like you said, you've got enhancers, you've got, you know, DNA methylation or histone modifications. There's so much that goes into it. It's so, this is why I find your project so, amazing because it's trying to incorporate like all of those different things so you're looking at so you've looked at obviously during this work you've focused on enhancers mm -hmm. you've obviously just mentioned there as well like some epigenetic modifications mm -hmm. are those sort of the only two things that you've looked at have you sort of are there any other sort of like regulatory elements that you, you've looked at at all yeah i mean so i think uh, primarily uh we've looked at enhancers and also uh, maybe a, a little bit more of a background. So en enhancers uh, are thought to work because they serve as binding platforms for these things called transcription factors, mm -hmm. which are among the most sort of prevalent uh, proteins in, in cells. But what they do is they seem to bind DNA uh, and then recruit uh, other proteins such as chromatin modifiers or even things like RNA polymerase so that then you can finally get gene expression. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, the, the one way that people have sort of, I, I think there's since, again, the genomics revolution has become very easy to look genome, genome wide at what things are going on. So for example, it's pretty routine now to measure genome wide what the binding profile of a particular transcription factor is or what the, the spread of a particular chromatin mark is, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think something that gets lost when you're swimming in a sea of data is that probably every locus is its own beast. Uh, and it, although we can gain some sort of general principles from looking at genome-wide data, maybe there needs to be a little bit more focus on locus-specific spe mechanisms from which then we can then glean more general insights. So we kind of need a balance between the two. Uh, and so I think our approach is sort of saying, okay, we've learned these things from genome-wide approaches, but now let's start to zoom in on loci and see if we can really understand the, mm -hmm. the regulatory logic there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, no, I think it's such an interesting approach. So let's go sort of like from the beginning then. Sure. So my first question is, I'm interested in like how much experience, okay, first question is, how is your split? Do you do just wet lab work? Do you do bioinformatics, a bit of both? Yeah, we do, a, do, a, do a bit of both. Uh, I'd say uh, most of my time is definitely wet lab, but I, I definitely do a, a good amount of uh, bioinformatics as well. And I think that's only going to increase uh, uh, as I'm sort of going through this stuff. I think uh, we, we're at a point now where I think the, the sort of uh, the 
the pipeline uh, in, on the wet lab side of things is somewhat worked out. And now I think it's it, it's cool to then apply it to a, to a, you know a bunch of different uh, uh, assays, for example, which we can then will require a lot of bioinformatics to then understand what's going on. Yeah, mm -hmm. so a bit of both is the is uh, the answer. Yeah, I th I think that's the, that's the best mm -hmm. best mix. I think I wish I could do a little bit more. Like I had the chance to do a little bit more wet lab. Yeah, yeah. Um, I still have the chance, so I need to. I need to do that. I need to make sure that I do that at some point and don't just stay fully bioinformatics. So yeah, I love that. So as you're sort of explaining the project, all I'm thinking is, oh my God, if I was you, I would be so intimidated, like starting the PhD. So I'm interested in, first of all, learning a little bit more about the methods that you've used to actually do this. Yeah. And also like, what was your experience in learning these methods? Like how, how difficult was it or you know, like yeah. how much experience did you have? So you mentioned that you were part of this build a genome class. Yeah. Did you learn any of these techniques in that class? Well, I, I think to a certain extent. So, um, you know, the, the, the way, maybe it'd be useful to, to just paint a picture of how we actually do this thing. So as I told you, the, the way that we, the approach that we're taking to understand how a particular genetic locus is regulated is to try to build it from the ground up. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, so the, the way that we do this is we actually can synthesize uh, DNA either by, we can generate it by PCR or we can order DNA up to about maybe 3000 to 5000 base pairs or so from a commercial company. Mm -hmm. And then what we do is we use Baker's yeast, uh, which is really good at homologous recombination, which means it's just good at stitching two pieces of DNA together if they share some sequence similarity. And so what we do is we just chuck in all of our pieces of DNA that have some overlap into yeast, and then the yeast just stitches it together into a larger piece of DNA. Now, the trick then is to figure out which yeast cell contains the piece of DNA with this whole entire thing that you're hoping to assemble. And we have some robotics and automation that helps with that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so some of this uh, stuff I learned during the Build a Genome course, uh, but a lot of the stuff, uh, especially in terms of building mammalian loci, uh, uh, and then finally, you know, we don't really want to study mammalian loci and yeast, even though we can build them there. To get them from uh, yeast cells into mammalian cells was quite challenging, uh, and that was something that me and some others in the lab, especially during the start of my PhD, had we invested a lot of time and effort in trying mm -hmm. to figure that out. And now, thankfully, that's a a nice pipeline but you know it was just a lot of uh you know i'd say maybe a year year and a half of just you know technical troubleshooting which is right, can be quite yeah painful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah but but you know it, i think now when i look back on it those were some of the most rewarding things because i think we really were figuring out sort of painstakingly uh you know what worked and what didn't and it, it was nice to do it in a group of people as well uh yeah. and not feel like uh, I was alone sort of waging a war uh, so yeah, yeah absolutely and I think as well anyone that I've spoke to like the first year of your PhD so I don't know do you know everyone always says to me like second year is second and third year well actually everyone always says to me second year is the worst year so when I went mm. into my second year everyone was like the second year is the worst like but, but I hands down believe that the first year will be the worst like second mm. been fine 
And I think yeah. third year is going to be fine. I think first year for me, I don't know, maybe if you, do you agree or? Uh, so what, why do you, why would you say the first year? Okay, so I would say first year is the worst for me because, and I don't know if this is maybe just, probably just my own personal experience, but for me, I think, because I, when I went from undergraduate to PhD, also I didn't have much experience. So this is why I asked about, like, I was curious about your experiences, sort of learning all of these new techniques. So I had done my dissertation in bioinformatics, but I really, looking back, learned, I learned a lot, but I didn't know much, if that makes sense. So going into my first year for me was such a steep learning curve, which is why for me, I think it was, I don't know, is the worst year the right word? Maybe, maybe not, but for it's me- the hardest. Yeah, and I, yeah. I think that even once I finish my PhD, I will still maintain that because yeah. it's just such a steep learning curve for me. So, but I get what you're saying about it's rewarding, like a hundred percent once I'd like done that really big thing that I was trying to do and I spent so much time focusing on the best feeling <laughs> yeah yeah I mean, and maybe that's also a UK US uh difference there because we do our first year is rotations right so it's mostly just oh, going, around, yeah, yeah. Yeah. going around labs and you know you, you are learning a lot and sometimes it is a steep learning curve but it's you know it's a little bit more let's say pressure off in a way right you just have this freedom to explore and just learn new things um, and I think that the second year was definitely the, the hardest for me because I think there's a lot of things of like trying to find balance in life of like yeah. you know, how much time to spend in lab, how much time to spend on classes, on myself, uh, picking a project, mm -hmm. after you pick a project, running through technical hurdles and so on and so forth. So yeah, I would say the second year was the, yeah, I, yeah, I year was the, like, the programs are completely different. So like yeah. we, we don't do classes either. Right, right, yeah. Classes, right, so yeah, I, I always forget that. Yeah. I always just assume that everyone is the same, but yeah, so that's why the first year was the worst for me, like the first year of research. Yeah, yeah, On yeah. my project was. I, I, I could, yeah, the, that, that's definitely a steep learning curve. Yeah, mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Um, okay, so I, I just completely changed the subject there. So we were talking yeah. about um, methods that you use. So yes, yeah, so you're mainly sort of wet lab. Mm -hmm. oh, I'd say like, you know, maybe 70% wet lab and 30% bioinformatics, but and subject to change. Yeah. <laughs> as you were talking about the methods as well, so, and obviously when I was reading through the paper, so I'm going to say like how I feel like things, like how I think that you did the project. Now tell me if I'm wrong. Sure. So yeah. from what I understood is, like you said, you were building sort of these systems from the ground up. So what are you doing like sort of like a, a sequential approach so like you would let's say like add in I don't know like the enhancers and then you might add in uh, another enhancer and you is that sort of the way that you was doing it and if so how did you pick like the um what's the word I'm looking for the sequence in which you was adding things was it random or yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, so maybe this would be a good point to talk about uh, the, the locus that we're zooming in on this paper. So I've sort of spoken in so far, I think, in pretty general terms of what we could do with this approach, uh, because I th we do think it's a generalizable approach, but I think it's always nice to start with one defined question locus. So yeah, and I think you, you gave a great explanation as to why that's... Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and so 
so we the the locus that we picked for this paper or this study was the Hoxa locus. So uh, the Hoxa locus is one of four loci in mammalian genomes that encode Hox uh, proteins. So Hox proteins are a deeply conserved set of transcription factors uh, that actually pattern the head-to-tail axis of the developing embryo. So uh, when they were first discovered uh, in mammals, or since they were first discovered in mammals about 40 years ago, what was really interesting was that their order of, or their position in the genome, right? Uh, let's say there's a, in the Hoxa clusters, there's 11 genes, right? Their order in that, in that cluster is exactly the same order as their order of expression across the head to tail axis, right? Mm-hmm. So things that are found earlier in the cluster, mm-hmm. let's say from left to right, are found expressed earlier in both space and time across this head to tail axis of the developing embryo. That's really so, interesting. I've heard a lot yeah. about the Hox genes, but I've never yeah. had that's interesting. Yeah, and so so the, that's why they're like really this this sort of model for understanding the link between genome structure and gene expression, right? Because it's clear that there's some sort of par- there's some correlation there. Yeah. Uh, and so since they were first discovered in mammals, so they're initially described in Drosophila, but if we're focusing our conversation on mammalian gene regulation, mm-hmm. uh, the the puzzle has really been how are these genes regulated, right? And and since in that that whole time, uh, all the different layers of regulation that I described have been sort of applied to the the Hoxa cluster. So mm-hmm. uh, think about enhancers, chromatin, transcription factor binding three-dimensional organization, all of these different things are at play at the, at the Hoxate cluster. And so the, the puzzle that we, we really wanted to go after is, okay, we have this descriptive sense of what's happening, but can we functionally understand, come to a synergistic model of how these different things come together to give us this final gene expression pattern, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Thankfully for us at the Hoxay cluster, given that it's been pretty well studied, we had a good sense for what the elements at play were, right? So there are these things. So, and in, in, in the model sort of that we're going after is a, is a uh, stem cell differentiation model. So we can take mouse embryonic stem cells and differentiate them with the same sort of morphogens that a developing embryo would see. Mm-hmm. Right? So things like retinoic acid or Wnt. Uh, and what that does is it converts the uh, ES cells into mo- neuron-like cells, mm-hmm. right? That have the appropriate anterior, posterior, or head-to-tail identity, and they express the correct subset of Hox genes, right? So, for example, we can take mouse ES cells, treat them with retinoic acid, and they express Hoxa one through Hoxa five, just like they would in the in the embryo, and that's been a sort of nice model to understand how Hox genes are are regulated. Mm-hmm. And so, what we really wanted to understand was, can we sort of get this, you know, understand synergistically how this retinoic acid response works at Hoxa? Mm-hmm. Right. So, over the thirty years or so, there's been a whole bunch of different elements that are. DNA elements that are implicated. So within the cluster itself, there are these things called retinoic acid response elements or RARES, which are binding sites for the transcription factor that's downstream of retinoic acid. 
mm -hmm. that turns on the Hox genes. Uh, we also have a whole bunch of enhancers that uh, regulate Hox gene expression. We also know that three-dimensional organization uh, uh, restricts which Hox genes have access to the activated enhancers. And also we have heterochromatin and euchromatin domains that are at play at the HOXA cluster such that once a certain set of genes are activated, the, those get euchromatinized and the other genes are heterochromatinized. And that sort of is a stable, uh, so the, the, the way to describe it is once the cells experience the morphogen or the differentiating signal, the, the HOXA cluster is converted into a stable epigenetic topological, which is three-dimensional, uh, mm -hmm. as well as transcriptional state mm -hmm. that is then retained for the rest of life, right? Like, for example, our head cells know that they're a head cell and our tail cells know that they're a tail cell and that is retained through life, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they're not spontaneously changing into a different, different state. Uh, and so that's really the question that we're, we're answering. And so given that this has been well described, what we thought we could do was just basically make sort of broad abstractions. So rather than saying, what are the role of individual elements? Mm -hmm. Can we understand what groups of elements are doing together, right? So, yep. so what we thought was, okay, so first let's build a locus that doesn't contain any of these upstream enhancers whatsoever, right? Mm -hmm. And just look at, what's encoded within the cluster itself. Uh, then we add on the enhancers and then we can make sort of like mix and match combos of yeah. things of elements deleted within the cluster but contain the enhancer and vice versa. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the, these are DNA manipulations that you couldn't really make unless you were able to build this DNA from the ground up. Because for example, if you wanted to get rid of all of the instances of a particular transcription factor binding site, like doing that by CRISPR would be really difficult because you'd yeah. go in, make one change, yeah. go in and make another change and so on and so forth. And by the time you finally got to the, the construct or the allele that you wanted to test, it would be a really long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes complete sense. A really good explanation. Do you um, make the... So do you disrupt the enhancers yourself? Is that something that you've done in the yeah. lab? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the way, the, the way that we've approached it is to basically build these loci from the ground up, right? So what we do is we just say, this is the sequence of DNA that we want. Mm -hmm. And we're going to segment it into smaller chunks of DNA, which we can either order from a company or generate uh, by PCR or other methods. And then we build it such that we then can in yeast so that we have that final sequence. So the mm -hmm. first construct that we built was a HOXA cluster that didn't contain any of these upstream enhancers. Mm -hmm. And then now when you put that into cells and then put the construct or the cells containing the construct through the differentiation protocol, then we can ask, how does this now synthetic construct behave? And that tells you what the enhancers are required for, right? Because whatever behavior this construct is capable of, the enhancers are not required for that behavior. Yep, that makes complete sense. So what did, you, what did you expect to see when you took out all the enhancers? Yeah, and what did you see? Yeah, so we, we had no expectation really. Um, 
and we were like you know I, I feel like that's the best way to approach that's yeah. the best way to go around isn't it yeah exactly and and so we were we were like you know so we built this thing we put it into the genome and we're like you know whatever happens is is interesting mm -hmm. uh and so what we found was actually independent of any of the distal enhancers the Cox, the synthetic Cox cluster was actually able to respond to retinoic acid exactly okay. like it would at the endogenous locus. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the difference that we saw was that the amount of gene expression that you were getting was muted, even though you were turning on exactly the correct subset of Hox genes, mm -hmm. the amount of gene expression was not like we were seeing in yep. the endogenous context. And so what we then did was built a construct that contained all of the distal enhancers upstream of this first construct that we tested. And then when we put, when we put that into cells and then put the cells through the exact same differentiation protocol, we could see that the, the construct with the enhancers it also upregulated the exact right subset of genes. But now, especially at early time points in the differentiation, we were getting much higher amounts of expression. So at least at the Hox8 cluster, what we're thinking is that these distal enhancers don't specify which genes are active, but mm -hmm. they boost the amount of transcription that you get from the system. Okay, that's really interesting. So that then obviously suggests that there's something else responsible for. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So that's exactly the question that we went after next, right? Which was, so then there's things within the cluster that seem to turn on which genes are active. Yeah. And our perfect, the, the top candidate for that were these retinoic acid response elements, mm -hmm. uh, which are transcription factor binding sites for the transcription factor that's downstream of the differentiating signal that we're giving these cells, which is retinoic acid. And so there's four of them that have been pretty well described that are in the Hoxate cluster. And so what we did was just make small changes to each one of those mm -hmm. that we thought would abrogate binding of this transcription factor. Yeah. So we built a third construct that did not contain any of these sites, put them into cells, and put them through the exact same differentiation protocol. And now, lo and behold, in response to retinoic acid, we got no activation of oh. the genes whatsoever. And so it really, it seems like, you know, the retinoic acid response elements that are found within the cluster are really the primary drivers of the response to, to retinoic acid. And that's really interesting. You said there was, there was four of those? Yeah, there's four of those, yeah. So just removing or manipulating four of those binding sites completely removed any response to retinoic acid whatsoever. That's, yeah, that's really, really interesting. Did you or have you thought about manipulating maybe just one or two or three of them? Yeah, yeah so th that's actually an ongoing effort right now is to... Yeah figure out if they somewhat work independently of each other. Do they work together? Do you actually need to get rid of all four yeah. to see the phenotype and so on? So that's that's exactly an ongoing series of experiments in the lab. Yeah. And how are they, how are those four, like what's different about them? Yeah, I mean, it's, so the, the, the position is different. So let's say, you know, like, let's say there's HOXA1 through HOXA5 in this cluster that's turned on in response to retinoic acid. There's mm -hmm. one, you know, it's not right to say one for every single one of those genes, yeah. but on average, they're somewhat distributed within that domain. Mm -hmm. So you could potentially think of it as sort of like activating that entire domain yeah. and recruiting 
chromatin modifiers as well as like RNA polymerase to then turn on the expression of those genes. But it, it's, you know, I don't want to speculate too much. We don't fully understand how that might work. Yeah, I, yeah, I would, I would speculate, but only because I'm not watching <laughs> the experiment. So like, yeah. I would, yeah, I, I don't want to ask you to speculate, but would my thoughts would be that maybe, you know, like one would activate a certain subset of the genes and then the next one might is I yeah I mean, that, 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 could, that would be pretty amazing if it were indeed that modular but uh, and we have some sense that that might be the mechanism at play but i think you know what, what's interesting is also this sort of cooperative nature of it right it could be that uh you, yeah. it's sort of like a feed forward loop so once you have a few of them going on then they sort of cross react and like you get way yeah. more yeah. than you would predict just by you know it's sort of you could think of it as either additive so you just yeah. get the individual effect of each one of these or there might be super additive that there's some sort of uh, you know, it's sort of a non-linear scaling right so rather than one plus one equal two yeah. One plus one actually equals five for some reason. And what the mechanism of that, I don't know. And I think it'd be pretty interesting. Yeah, that's true actually. I didn't think about that. Yeah. So do you know exactly like what what they recruit? Yeah, so you know, we know they 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 are binding sites for this transcription factor, right? The retinoic yeah. retinoic acid receptor. Yeah. Now it's a it's a little so this is the thing with biology it always gets more complicated right so the, yeah. the retinoic acid receptor actually there's uh, multiple versions of it and it binds as a heterodimer so it actually binds with this other co-receptor which okay. there are also a few versions of so it's unclear which exact what exactly is going on there mm -hmm. uh, but but presumably i think what they're doing and there's some evidence to indicate that they're recruiting chromatin modifiers directly mm -hmm. uh, and i would also expect then that following that recruitment of, yeah. or at the same time, recruitment of RNA polymerase. It's hard to also get a, a temporal sense of what happens first and uh, what's next, because we of only course, look yeah. later on, but yeah. Okay, yeah. I take back my prediction about <laughs> in a subset of genes, and I take that back. <laughs> that would yeah. be very, very cool, but yeah. Um, I guess, yeah, what are your thoughts? Maybe they, I don't know, like, um do you know much about the chromatin state before and after yeah activation so is it like heterochromatin so I, I think you did mention it and is it did you say it was heterochromatin to euchromatin or yeah exactly so what what so what happens is so let's say there's these 11 genes of the hoxate cluster when they're not expressed in undifferentiated cells the entire cluster is decorated with k27 trimer so histone 3 lysine 27 modification which is heterochromatin. Yeah. Uh, and then what you get upon differentiation is the establishment of a new chromatin domain. So you get active chromatin where there's active genes, so HOXA1 through HOXA5, mm -hmm. and then there's inactive chromatin with all the other genes that are not expressed, so HOXA6 through HOXA13. Oh, okay. So yeah, it could be, I guess, more likely that they all then recruit some stuff which yeah yeah but, 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 but so this is an interesting thing right which i think uh will kind of hints at there's maybe something more complicated going on so uh, i told you about these two constructs right one that 
uh, was only the genes and another one that had the genes plus the distal enhancers, right? Mm -hmm. So we also looked at the chromatin status of these two, right? And the, so the, at transcription, the difference was that they both upregulated up exactly the correct subset of genes, but the one with the enhancers seemed to have higher levels of expression, especially early on. Mm -hmm. So the level of chromatin, what's interesting is that the construct with the enhancers actually forms a much sharper chromatin boundary than the construct without the enhancers. And so mm -hmm. this is maybe hinting to us that either the enhancers, distal enhancers serve as sites for additional chromatin modifier recruitment, or mm -hmm. that the tr increased transcription that we see is actually helping reinforce this new chromatin domain that needs to be formed. Yeah. So you actually maybe potentially lead to greater chromatin turnover as mm -hmm. you are able to wipe off this ancestral, st ancestral state and establish new chromatin state. So, and again, we don't have evidence one way or the other, and maybe both of those things are going on, uh, but that's also another interesting uh, area to go into. And what's amazing is if you delete these four retinoic acid receptor binding sites and look at chromatin, you best basically get no chromatin remodeling whatsoever. Uh, the entire thing stays heterochromatinized through the differentiation. Wow, super interesting. Have you thought at all about, maybe this is completely irrelevant and I'm way off, but have you, or has anyone ever spoke maybe about like transcriptional condensates or like yeah. phase phase separation? Like maybe this is, or I mean, is that like completely? No, weird? I mean, I, I think, you know, that's an interesting hypothesis. I think the the data are not, I think it's still unclear on whether phase separation for this condensate model for transcription is a generalizable model for all transcription. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I do think, you know, manipulating the ability to manipulate DNA on this scale could allow us to test that model pretty mm -hmm. dramatically. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that we have some ideas uh, on how we could do that. Mm -hmm. um, especially, you know, if you think of like, what's a, you know, a somewhat simple explanation of the model might be that, okay, these enhancers recruit transcription factors, which have a sort of floppy end, uh, which can serve to form these phase separation condensates, which then recruit RNA polymerase, and you get a whole bunch of transcription from the system. Now, what you can do is start to manipulate the amount of recruitment sites that you have for transcription factors at the yeah. DNA level, right? By building these constructs from the ground up and say, okay, is one transcription factor binding site enough or one enhancer enough? What is the, what is the nature of the enhancer that's sufficient to have that behavior? Are two enough, three enough? Do they need to be in a particular order? Mm -hmm. Need to be in a particular you know, space or particular environment? Uh, mm -hmm. Those are the sorts of questions that we can ask uh, and we hope to ask with, with this side type of approach. Uh, but I think the jury is still pretty out yeah. on whether that yeah. model is uh, is correct or not. Well, yeah, I think there's a couple models. We did an episode with Wendy Bickmore. Yeah, yeah. We were speaking about this. And yeah, I think she was saying that it's all a bit up in the air, really, like what the model is. And I think a lot of people like disagree on the models for, well, at least for enhancers. Um, yeah. So interesting, yeah. Yeah. But I feel yeah. like you could literally do like so 
like so many questions could be answered with this approach. Yeah. Um, yeah. You see, that's actually one of the problems is, you know, we, it's kind of like writer's block, right? It's like, yeah. if you could write anything, what would you write? Exactly. Uh, yeah, and it's hard to sort of like come up with good testable hypotheses for, for you know, you know that, that's like the ultimate goal, right? Is to say, okay, we have a particular conception of the world and there's these competing hypotheses and there's these experiments that we can do to test them. Like yep. that's the ideal way in which we could potentially do this. But of course it's hard to frame a question that, that or crystallize a question that beautifully. Yeah, because yeah, like when you have so many questions that you could, I totally get what you mean. Like it's hard to know. I was going to ask you earlier, like um, how many different combinations of, yeah. so actually I was going to ask um, how many enhancers are, like how many enhancers for the Hox clusters are there? Yeah, so it's it's a, hard, it's a hard question to answer to give you an exact number, but at least yeah. so at the Hox A cluster, these distal enhancers, I'd say there's probably five, maybe it's under ten for sure, right? Okay. And they, they're you know you can describe them in different cell types and different models, and then ultimately you also have to functionally test them, right? Either you take them and put them in a transgenic reporter assay and they have some sort of behavior or you CRISPR them out and they, yeah. it leads to some change in gene expression. That, mm -hmm. that it's hard and, to define it, exactly. Yeah, but, but thankfully at the Hox-A cluster, a lot of them have been functionally defined in, in that manner. Uh, but, but in terms of the number of constructs that we built in this first paper, we described four constructs. So the three that I've described to you, yeah. uh, genes themselves, genes plus enhancers, the locus without the internal RARE binding sites. Mm -hmm. But now fourth one where we could address the relates, relative contribution of the internal RARES versus the distal enhancers where we had the internal RARE deletion, but then put the enhancers back on top of this construct, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it turned out when you put that into cells and then differentiate them, those don't really turn on gene expression as well as, well as when you have the Wait, internal sorry. Mm -hmm. Sorry, so you, so sorry if this is really stupid. How does the fourth construct differ from just its natural, like just from wild type? Because it doesn't have the internal RARES. So, oh, sorry, sorry, my apologies. I thought you said you had them in that. Okay, that makes yeah, sense. So, so, yeah, so we, we do kind of like, you know, if you think of the two different things that we're testing are distal enhancers on one hand and internal RARES on the other hand, we just made constructs that have all four combinations, right? So have enhancers and have RARES, you only have RARES. You don't have either, or you have enhancers, but no RARES. Okay, so yeah, can, that makes you, complete sense. If you test out that entire space, then you can get a sense of what the model might be, right? And so the model that we're proposing right now is that the internal RARES are really primarily driving the specification force mm -hmm. in response to RA, and the enhancers boost the signal that you get from it. The wow. distal enhancers. Yeah. Amazing results. Really, really interesting. Um, are there any other transcription factor binding sites there as well, or is it just? I mean, there, there's plenty, right? I mean, that's and, and again, we've only looked at one differentiation protocol, really, so or one morphogen. But the Hox cluster needs to respond to a whole bunch of them because it needs yeah. to specify this entire body yeah. plan, right? So. 
one of the areas that we'd like to go in is like now let's put them into put them through diff different differentiation protocols yeah can we get a sense for what's going on there so on and so forth and so what was the reason for picking this particular it's just one that's really well described it takes yeah. four days and it's yeah stupidly efficient so you know something like 90 percent of cells in the dish acquire the right fate that we want to so in terms of doing all of your genomics assays so chip seq mm -hmm. or rna seq or high c we are not limited by material. We can just grow a lot of them in a day. Yeah, yeah, that makes complete sense. Yeah. Um, oh, what else was I going to ask? Um, did you um, as well have, or is there any sort of way that, like, Tad sort of fell into this work? Like, did yeah. you have at all? Yeah, absolutely. So we did. So, uh, so it <laughs> another layer of complexity. I think yeah. I might have alluded to this in my. Uh, discussion was so one of the things that people are curious about when you look at these Hox genes they turn on and they're you know accessed or they're regulated by these distal enhancers but you need to only activate this set of genes but not the the ones in the active domain but not activate these genes that are located located right next door exactly right and how might that be yep. and so when people started looking at the three-dimensional organization they found that the hox a cluster actually lies at a topologically associated domain boundary or tad boundary mm -hmm. and so in three-dimensional space the position of the boundary shifts depending on which genes are active so if for example hox a1 through hox a5 is active only those genes have preferential access to the, the distal enhancers and the genes in the inactive domain have less access and so actually, if you then start to manipulate the position of the TAD boundary by deleting CTCF sites that form the TAD or are thought to be implicated in TAD boundary formation, then you actually get shifts in which genes are expressed. So you actually get more expression of some of these posterior Hox genes. Mm -hmm. And so what we found was when we built these synthetic constructs, uh, both the construct with the enhancers and without the enhancers was actually able to reorganize in three dimension in a completely new location in the genome. Uh, and now is this formed by the exact same mechanism by which TADs in the endogenous, endogenous location are formed? It's unclear, but at least it seems like they retain the ability to reorganize in three dimension. Uh, and I, you know, we can speculate about what the mechanisms there might be. Uh, but you know, in, for our study, we just stopped at somewhat being descriptive, just saying, do these at this do these synthetic constructs at a new location in the genome? Do they are, are they able to reorganize in three D? And on some level, they are. Now, mm -hmm. Mechanistically, how that happens, we don't really know yet. Mm -hmm. oh, that's so interesting. Really, really cool. How did you? What methods did you use to? Um, did you do high C, did you say? Yeah, we just did like genome-wide high C. Yeah. Now, resolution's not as great, especially, it's it's not bad, but you know, if we wanna look at interactions within like one megabase, you know, probably would be nicer to do like, you know, probably like capture C would be the best way to go about it uh, uh, or even 5C, I guess. Uh, but, uh, and those are things that we wanna do, but haven't done yet. I would so it's like one of those things isn't it so if I was not to scare you at all <laughs> but if I was you I would be kind of scared going into the review process because I think like 
there's so many things that they could be like oh you should do this you should do that like there's so many things that like they could just yeah. add on you know like because there's so many and not out of them being like horrible reviewers and being like but just then I just feel like it's one of the things that just sparks people's curiosity and they'll be like oh but why don't you do this why don't you do that you know yeah absolutely so uh, let's hope the reviewer gods are kind to us uh, right. fingers yeah. crossed for you <laughs> So earlier I mentioned before we started recording that I was really keen to talk about um, basically why this work hasn't been done already. Mm -hmm. So this is to me one of those things that when someone says it, you think, and I'm not like, uh, what's the word? I'm not like putting this down at all. And I no, mean, no, no. Sure. it's one of those things that is so like elegant and simple. Obviously it's not simple, but the, the logic of it is like so like okay why has no one thought of that before you know yeah so what are your opinions on or is there any sort of like feel for like why this work hasn't been done are there any like really big limitations to it yeah I mean I think the there's a, a technical limitation I think is the primary thing I think multiple people have wanted to do similar work like this before but it just hasn't been yeah technically feasible to manipulate DNA on, on this scale, right? So the, the way that I think about it is, so if you think of this as a, a reconstitution approach to understanding regulation, right? So kind of like biochemical reconstitution, mm -hmm. where if, you, if you're, if, if, you know, enzymes are complex and there's a whole bunch of things that uh, work together to give you a particular behavior, the way that in biochemistry has been elegantly tackled has been by reconstituting it, right? So you purify the components down, you observe their individual behaviors, and then you mix them in a test tube and you see what the behavior together is. And so if you simplify it and you can reconstitute a process in vitro, then you know exactly the components that are coming together. To, so it just gives you uh, exquisite control over the various components in the, in the system, right? And so we thought, can we do that with regulation? So have exquisite control over all the components of the system and then try to reconstitute from the ground up, like I've been talking about. Yeah. Now, people have tried to do things like that. And I think to a certain extent, like transgenic reporters uh, or back reporters even where So bacterial artificial chromosomes, which are, you know, can be up to 300,000 base pairs in length. People have tried to use that to address these types of regulatory questions. But I think the issues that they suffer from are one, in the case of small transgenic reporters, they're not quite the appropriate context to be studying because gene regulation, because as we know, gene regulation happens on this much larger length scale. Yeah. Uh, and secondly, I think with BACs, even though they provide you with that genomic context, it's really hard, has been historically really hard to manipulate them. So if you wanna make the kinds of variations that I've been talking about, then it's been hard to do that. And so. I think what we do is just sort of square that circle uh, in a way, right? Where we complete that circle where we can provide this big genomic context because we can build these pieces of DNA. But because we can build these pieces of DNA from the ground up, we can make as many changes across that piece of DNA as we want. So on the one hand, if you have you know, ease of engineering, on the other hand, if you have size or genomic context, you know, we, I think, sit right in the middle of both of those things and we can effectively capture both of those interests. Whereas backs or reporter constructs really only do one or yeah. the other. Mm -hmm. So I think it, the, the large part has been a, a technical, the large yeah. reason why these sorts of things haven't been done before, I think is a, is a technical 
uh, inability, but now I think we can. Yeah, that makes complete sense. So what other, are there similar projects going on in your lab? Are people looking yeah. at other uh, locuses? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So um, the, this is uh, in the context of a project called the Dark Matter Project. And if people are interested, they can go to the darkmatterproject.org. It's a website that describes the entire project, uh, which is taking a similar building approach to understanding gene regulation in lots of other contexts in complex genomes. So, uh, you know, uh, lucky enough to be sort of part of the initial wave of this. And so the HOXA locus was really the first project that's been sort of furthest along in terms of dissecting gene regulation at a locus, but there's 20 or so that are underway now. Uh, and we're always interested to, to hear more. Uh, and so there, on the website, there's a, a, uh, a link that you can uh, submit uh, ideas uh, if you want to collaborate with us. And we're, we're always open to ideas. Every year, we actually pick three to five new loci that we mm -hmm. then go after. Uh, so personally, uh, I'm involved in three other projects in addition to uh, doing more with HOXA. Uh, so we're looking at the the Exxon Activation Center, uh, which I think we can cool. study and bash in similar manner, and also a couple of other projects that are not quite ready for prime time uh, uh, in collaboration with uh, with others which are again looking at similar things uh, and asking similar questions uh, surrounding gene regulation. Uh, but I think in the, in the far future, I think, you know, we, it's an interesting question to ponder, which is what can we do with synthetic DNA, right? And I think yeah. um, we, we don't need to be constrained by what's found in nature necessarily to understand nature. And so yeah. I think some of the, the really exciting future applications of this, I think, are trying to build novel regulatory platforms, mm -hmm. right, that don't exist in nature, both in terms of understanding how this might work and two for therapeutic applications. Uh, yep. uh, and also to, you know, just do fun things with synthetic DNA that you couldn't before. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's absolutely amazing. It's such a cool, such an amazing project to be part of for your PhD. Like, yeah absolutely amazing do you think you'll like continue working on is continue working on this project like part of your long-term plans is it something that you can potentially do yeah I think a certain extent I think uh in in general I'm, I'm really taken with this uh, building to understand approach right mm. uh and I think especially the interface or the intersection of of synthetic genomics which is the ability to build uh, large pieces of DNA with some of the really exciting advancements in uh, reading DNA. So single cell genomics, especially, I think are potentially very interesting. And so I think my more longer term vision is to sort of try to marry those two, those two fields. Wow, yeah. that sounds cool. That would be amazing. Yeah, because I think, you know, on the one hand, you have the, I think we could push the ability to to write and manipulate DNA. And we can also push the ability to, to read DNA and its effect on cells. Uh, mm -hmm. So to, to marry the two, uh, to really try to understand on a, a large scale uh, mm -hmm. how gene regulation or genome organization or is working or how to engineer cells to yeah. 
as therapeutics or for other other purposes, I think guys uh, could be really, really interesting. And so that's sort of longer term vision. 100%. Yeah, I think it's nice that you have like a long term sort of goal for your research. I think it's quite hard, like during your PhD to have that. So I think it's yeah. Really yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, yeah, slowly developed over time. And, you know, probably yeah. ask me this question tomorrow, I would probably have a different answer. But I think, you know, it's, <laughs> it's getting, I think with, with research questions, you kind of have to pick what really strikes a chord with you. I mean, because, you know, as you know, research, go, you can go through lots of ups and downs. Uh, and I think if you don't pick a question, or at least for me, if I don't pick a question that I, you know, very viscerally feel strongly motivated by, then it kind of mm -hmm. can feel hard to, to keep going. Keep going, yeah, 100%. Yeah, no, I, I don't even think that would be just for you. I think that's for most, I think a lot of people would agree with that. Um, a lot and I was I was actually having a conversation yesterday with someone about about this actually and we was talking about like how some people sort of like change their topic as they go from PhD to postdoc and we were talking about like why that might be basically. I, I'm a I'm a little bit of a romantic when it comes to science uh, and I think you know it, and, and you know the day-to-day -day rigors of academic science can beat that out of you. Uh, yeah. And I think it's important to, to retain that sort of idealistic blue sky vision of science. Uh, yeah, uh, I agree. And, and yeah, I think in terms of like finding different areas of interest, I think that's really where progress comes from, right? Like not, uh, so Sean Eddy um, uh, has this beautiful piece called uh, The Importance of Anti-Disciplinary Science and not A-N-T-I, but A-N-T-E as in four chamber or anti-chamber or, you know, as in, so to be not not to not to put a downer on interdisciplinary science, which is great, but the thing about anti-disciplinary science is you're bringing new ways of thinking to a problem that leads to the formation of a new discipline, which you can then have a bunch of interdisciplinary people. Yeah. On, right. Uh, but I love that that concept of putting mm -hmm. yourself in an anti-disciplinary uh, space, yeah. right, where you. And, yeah. you know, like being in a position where you can't describe with a single word what you do. I think that's an awesome way to. Yeah, to that's what I said when I asked you and you were like, oh, no, and I, that's what I was saying. Like, it, I think it's really cool that you can't you can't explain it with one word because, yeah, I think that's great because it shows that it's something new and something exciting, something that someone's not done before if you haven't got a word for it. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that's something you're interested in or worthwhile to go after right depending yeah, on however you determine yeah. that and there's no one way to dis determine what's worth going after yeah. uh uh so and, you know I, I i think i have a tendency to to just go where other people don't but that's not necessarily a good thing right so just being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian is not necessarily valuable mm -hmm. well i feel like it's valuable to have both types of people yeah oh absolutely and also the people who do both. Like, I think I do probably do a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. um, but I think like all three are, are needed in science, you know? 100%. So whatever, whatever anyone is, is, is a good thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that, you know, diversity in any which way you describe it is I think critical to science in, mm -hmm. in any way. Ideas, people, backgrounds, um, you know. Yeah, yeah I think it's, it's extremely crucial. Mm-hmm.
Okay, so to wrap up, I have two last questions. Sure. One, I think you've kind of touched on a little bit. So the first one would be, what is sort of your your next steps? How long have you got until? Oh God, is that that is definitely the question you shouldn't ask a PhD student. Oh, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you got until we finish. Um, your yeah. next steps. Yeah, so uh, thankfully, uh, as of two weeks ago, I've, I've gotten permission to defend my uh, PhD. Okay. So congratulations. Uh, thank you. The tentative date is uh, mid-December. Oh my so, God, you're putting the date out there. Wow. Yeah, so, so it may be. Let's like, hope we don't have to do like a, a patch on this, <laughs> on this episode, but, but <laughs> mid-December is doable. So that's the goal. Amazing. Yeah. That's great. Um, what was my other question gonna be? Oh, my other question was gonna be, um, I haven't asked, cause I haven't had a student on in a while. I haven't been able to ask this question in a while, but I love this question because I love seeing what other people's answers are. Mm -hmm. So what would be your main piece of advice to someone starting their PhD? Oh, As that's is ending. I know it's quite a difficult question, isn't that's it? It's a tough one, yeah. Um, I mean, so one we've already touched on, which is like, you know, I think, the re for a lot of people coming into a PhD is because you have, you're, you're passionate about science and you have this idealistic vision of science, which often academic research is not. Uh, and so to try to retain that, that, uh, that blue sky vision of science, if as much as you can and try to find situations in which you can access that. So for a lot of people, it can be teaching, it can be outreach, uh, it could be, yeah. you know, having side projects, um, mm -hmm. you know, that they, they do to keep themselves fresh mm -hmm. and having like a, a life outside of science, right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. I think that is absolutely crucial. But I think, you know, as a very concrete piece of advice, I think it would be this concept that I've learned, not, you know, I think halfway through my PhD, which was upmanage. So there's, we think a lot of management as like coming from top down, right? So for example, your PI or your professor is managing your work and your time. But I think it's just as crucial for you as an individual to manage your relationship with your superior or your mentor. Uh, so either that might be the kind of mentorship that you want, the kind of support that you require, your happiness, however you might want to define it. Uh, you know, uh, I think there's all these, there, there's definitely a power differential, but there are mm. certain things that we could be aware of and communicate uh, as uh, trainees that I, I think, and personally, I have noticed a big change uh, since then, where, you know, I, I feel like I have a sense of ownership over my own, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, own happiness and what, how I want to be mentored. And, it, it, you know, it, a good mentors will take that on board and try to fit that in with their style. Uh, and I think that it's a better compromise for, for how to, to be in a, in, a, in a research environment. That's not to say that toxic environments don't exist and sometimes it's, there's really nothing you can do. Uh, and um, it's definitely situations in which leaving that environment is the, is the best situation. But uh, personally for me, I think, I was, I am in a co-mentorship situation, so I had to learn a lot on how to manage the, the, the two. Uh, and uh, honestly, they're, they're both fantastic mentors and mm -hmm. I learn a lot and I gain a lot from having two different points of view on pretty much any question. Mm 
it's yeah. so, so, so cool sometimes i've got three supervisors yeah oh man that that's yeah. Super, yeah yeah well like when i finish as i've got a meeting with all three of them on thursday actually and i know i'm gonna come out of it with like a list of just like I, <laughs> because they're all throw like they're all sort of in different areas as well obviously so they'll all like throw their ideas at me and i literally will come out of the meeting like with a list like that yeah yeah <laughs> Choose company, three's a crowd, right? Is that what you're <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, that's a great piece of advice. Um, okay, so my last, last question. Sure. How can anyone contact you if they want to? Have you got like a website or Twitter or anything? I can, I know you've got a Twitter. Uh, so Twitter is at Sud Pingley, S-U-D-P-I-N-G-L-A-Y. Uh, you can also uh, find my, I think if you Google me, you can find my, my email on the on the lab website as well as the dark matter project website oh, um and i also have a, have a google scholar profile so i guess that that's another way to get in touch with me amazing cool well i'll put all of those in the description yeah. um below so if anyone wants to check them out they can yeah uh yeah all that's left to say is thank you so much no that was really fun that's thank you for, for having amazing me. conversation really really enjoyed it um i'll also put the the preprint um yeah. And best of luck with your submission. Thank you. And also Thank you. with your defense. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>Thank you for joining us for this episode. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at The Genomics Lab. That's got a capital G and a capital L. You can actually also find both of us on Instagram at a genomics PhD and at PhD underscore Ellie. Finally, be sure to subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform and we will see you all in the next episode. Thank you again for listening.